Good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today, is it not? Another opportunity. We know not how many more the Lord is going to allow for each of us. Let's take advantage of each time that we have to assemble with God's people. Today's message will be the fourth in the series on the all-searching God and will be entitled The Omnipresence of God. If you would, take your uh, bulletin and we'll be reading from it. If you would, stand with me from Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, as we read in unison God's Word for the day. This is your opportunity to participate in the service rather than just being a spectator. All right? Ready? Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. You may be seated. One of the great weaknesses of the contemporary church and our American culture is its inability today to understand the nature of the true God. This has come about in the church as it has de-emphasized teaching and has emphasized experience. There is a place for both, but experience should flow out of the teaching or the doctrinal ministry of God's Word. And so, as a result, why in our American culture we still use the name God on a wide scale, but it has been the true God of the Bible has been virtually replaced, and now then we have, everybody has his own idea of what that word God means. I read a statement that I fully agree with the other day that the song that we sing, God Bless America, is now time that we change the name of that song to God's Bless America, G-O-D-S, because that's in essence what the individuals at the sporting events and at the different places of gathering really mean. If they really were required to believe what I'm going to set forth today, they would not dare sing that song of God Bless America. Because there's only one God, not many gods. Follow with me as we go verse by verse in this 139th Psalm and verses 7 through 12. We have looked at in the previous messages the omniscience of God, meaning that he's all-knowing. And that his knowledge is intuitive, it's not acquired knowledge. God has never learned a thing. He knows the end from the beginning, the in and out of all things, the past, the present, and the future, for he is the great I am. 
Now we move today to the omnipresence of God, which means that God is everywhere. Omni, all being, that he is in all places at once. David starts out with this sentence, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Look at it in the first part of the sentence. Where or whither shall I go from thy spirit? Now, why does David ask this question? This is important at the very outset. David is not asking this question to express his desire to escape from God's oversight. He's not trying to run away from God, similar to what Jonah thought he might be enabled to do. But David is asking the question in order to explain and define the essence of God's being. And all of these verses we'll be looking at will be enlarging upon the very nature or the essence of God in this divine attribute. A heathen philosopher once asked a Christian in mockery, Where is your God? The Christian replied, Where is he not? And I think that's a satisfactory answer if we have that kind of a question related to us in mockery. Now this expression, Whether shall I go from thy spirit? sets forth two truths and both may be understood, but we are unsure which of these two truths that David means. First, the expression may mean that God is spirit, that he is not flesh and bones. He is not a God who is made up of corporeal parts, as the Mormons teach, but instead he is pure spirit. There is another possible meaning than David's words, and that may mean that he is referring to the fact that God has a spirit. And either of these is true as it is set forth in the Bible, but we are unsure. If David is referring to the first of these truths, then he is describing the essence of God's being. If he is referring to the second, it is implying a plurality of persons within the Godhead. Paul would state in Mars Hill, that is, that God is in all places and cannot be escaped from. David would also say in Psalm 51 and verse 11, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So God in his essence is spirit. In his makeup, he is triune in nature, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God not only then is a spirit, he has a spirit, which we call the Holy Spirit. Look at the latter part of the sentence in verse 7. He asked, where shall I flee from thy presence? Whether we will it or not, God is always as near to us as our soul is to our body. 
Now, how close is your soul to your body? Pretty near, is it not? You don't have a body, but the cock's sitting here, over here on my right, and his soul's over here on my left. The body and the soul that makes up man's basic nature of being is connected. And thus, God is always as near to us as our soul is to our body. Interesting word here. The Hebrew word presence in our text is also translated elsewhere in the Bible as face. And the face of God in Scripture represents his essence. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus, chapter 33, and beginning in verse 20. What is the essence of God, and how is it described in Scripture? Exodus 33 and verse 20. Moses is asked to see God. Show me your glory in verse 18. Verse 20, and he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. It shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff or cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now again, we're speaking in metaphorical language. God is spirit. He does not have body parts. But some take this text and say, see there, we are right. God does have body parts. For he clearly states that in the text. Here is a way of describing the essence of the invisible God, which it is said that Moses saw him who was what? Invisible. This is how God enables us to see him, is through the eye of understanding. And thus he condescends to use metaphors that help us who have bodily parts like eyes and hands and feet and so forth, to be enabled to understand the, the, the being of God. But he says to Moses, No man shall understand fully my essence. I'm infinite. I am incomprehensible. But I'll give you some capacity, Brother Clint, which you are able to understand. I'm going to put you over here in this cave. When I pass by, I'm going to show you a part of my glory, but your my face you will not be enabled to see. Face is translated here in our text in Psalms today as presence, the essence of God. The effect of God's power, His wisdom, and His providence can be seen in that Brother Jim, these are his back parts. I can look out, as we sang a while ago, and see the creation. 
That tells me there's a what? There's a God. That's his back parts. His wisdom. I can see how he has combined uh, the plants with the bees. And one is dependent upon the other. I can see that. I can see God's wisdom. I can see his providence at work. And how that he controls all the movements of the created order. But these are but his back parts. The very essence of his being, you and I as finite creatures can never be able to see and comprehend because he's infinite. And in the moment that we think we do, we've become an idolater because we've made ourselves equal with this being. Now listen, wherever God is, or rather put it this way, God is wherever I am. I am but a small part of space. He fills all space. Hmm? A little boy in his school class, somehow the question came up of religion. And he made the statement that he believed that there was but one God. This troubled the school teacher, and she was disturbed by that answer, and she said, Who gave you the wisdom to believe that there is but one God? And his reply was, because he said there's not room for another one. There's not room for two all compressing or composing beings. God fills all things. So that while I stand here and occupy... A space, God is wherever I am. If I move over here to my left, God is here. The same amount that when I'm right here or to my right, because He fills all space. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of heaven and earth. This psalm was not written by a pantheist who believes that God is everything. The psalmist speaks of God as a person, everywhere present in his creation, yet distinct from it. The pantheist says that everything that is created is God. The Bible teaches that God is everywhere in his creation, and yet distinct From the creation, he says, thy spirit, thy presence, thou art there, thy right hand, darkness hideth not from thee. Do you see, David believed he was dealing with a person, and that person was the one eternal God. God is everywhere, but he is not everything. And that is the distinction between monotheism and polytheism. Move now to verse 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. As I mentioned, let's use the illustration again. God 
is wherever I shall be. When I move, God does not move. I'm going to now take the space I'm occupying, and I'm going to move about three feet. I have moved, but God has not. Why, Brother Asa? Because God was already here before I got there. Wherever I move, God does not move. He is already there. I move in Him. Acts 17.28 again. For in Him we live, and what? Move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. These are fundamental, grade one facts about the one true God. And how sad it is that the culture has so departed from the knowledge of God in the Bible that also this has come about in our churches. A noted TV evangelist uh, was making a comment on an airplane crash. And he was rebuking an individual Christian teacher who held that God is in all things. That is, he controls all things. And that was even superintending or controlling the movement of the airplane. And this TV evangelist said, I want you to know that that was all of the devil and God wasn't a million miles from that scene. Now think of that. God wasn't a million miles, or he was a million miles away from the scene of that airplane crash. And that the only reason the plane crashed was because the devil was in control. Now this is what we're contending with in the churches. And this is why there's such a great need for doctrinal preaching and teaching and instruction. So that when we use the term God, we are the understanding that He is infinitely present everywhere and never has to move. It's not that 80% of Him is over here at one time and 20% is over here. It's not that 80% of Him is in controlling of the hurricane and 20% is controlling the movement of a mosquito. All of Him is everywhere. Equally throughout his creation, both in heaven and in hell, is God's essential presence. In heaven, they have his gracious presence. In hell, they feel his wrathful presence. Had you thought about that? Now listen carefully, lest that you go out and distort what I'm, what I'm saying. God is in hell. His justice, His wrath, in the essence of His presence is there. And God is in heaven, 
in the sense that His gracious presence is there. His glory is marvelous. The presence of God's glory is in heaven. The presence of His power is manifested on earth. The presence of His justice is in hell. And the presence of His grace is with His people. If He deny us His powerful presence, we fall into nothing. If He deny us His gracious presence, we fall into sin. If He deny us His merciful presence, we fall into hell. This is the great need that we have, that we are not independent. We are totally dependent upon the one true God. Now then, this brings about a conclusion, which I hope that no one, under the sound of my voice, will ever be guilty of committing. You listening? It is a great mistake to commit suicide in order to escape either a guilty conscience or to end one's pain and sorrow or to escape the consequences of one's sins. Committing suicide does not change anything in one's nature of being. If one is in pain and sorrow, that may well continue. I haven't time to get into the matter of whether a true Christian can commit suicide or not. But to you that are alive here today, don't make the mistake that you can just end your life and escape the presence of God. You shall forever be in His presence. Revelation 22, verse 11. Speaking of those in the eternal state of affairs. He that is unjust, let him be what? Unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. As one leaves this present life, so they are confirmed into the next life. No purgatory, no second chance, no second opportunity, so to speak. But as one dies, so they spend eternity. There is no mention in this text in Revelation of annihilation. Which would be the only way to escape from God's presence. Hmm? To cease to be. Huh? You see the problem that the individuals and the churches have whose doctrine is such 
that the wicked shall be annihilated? Brother Pete, that would be a mercy. Annihilation is not found in the Scriptures. We are made in the image of God, and we shall live forever in one state or another. So if people have the false idea, well, uh, the wicked out here, that at the final judgment God will annihilate them all and they'll just cease to be, then that would mean then that they could escape from his presence. But the scriptures are very clear that the wicked shall spend eternity in hell with the wrathful presence of a holy God. Don't make the mistake of suicide and don't fall into the erroneous teaching of annihilation. You cannot escape God. Move now to verses 9 and 10. David says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. Just a way of double emphasis of the power and wisdom of God. The uttermost parts of the sea, the deepest parts of the sea. We've never prodded those parts yet because of the equipment that we have. We can go a long way. Look at the expression, the wings of the morning. Here again, we have a figure of speech or a metaphor describing the light beams of the sun rising. Look through your windows over here to my left, to your right, and there you see the rays of the sun beaming in through those windows. David describes those as wings. The light of the morning is like wings traveling. Light travels faster than lightning. And David is saying if he could move with the speed of light, he still could not escape God. (laughs) He could not outrun God any more than he could outrun the sun's beams as they move through the universe. Look at the next statement, the uttermost part of the sea. If he could locate himself in the most remote, obscure part of God's creation, God would still be there. Ascend up to heaven, God's there. Down to the depths of the sea, God is there. The rays of the sun are tremendously quick in their movement, but yet they cannot outrun God, for God is everywhere. I hope I'm not getting laborious, but I'm deliberately doing this in order to try to take us back to 101, (laughs) theology 101. This is basic. And yet, we're told today, let's move on to more important things. 
Let's move on to more important things. David says, Thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Any ability to move must first be given by God. Hmm? I raised my hand. You said your brain told you to do that. God's in control of my brain. In Him I live and move and have my being. I, if He unplugs me, this body, from Himself, this body goes back to the dust of the earth. I'm plugged into Him. This destroys the rebellious sinner's security and hope to live in sin and escape the judgment of God. If you're here this morning and you have that false hope that somehow you can continue to live in sin and rebellion and not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your substitute for sin and stand righteous in the sight of God, but that you're forever going to live on in sin and yet escape the judgment of God, this destroys that hope for God says, Thy hand shall lead you, and my right hand shall hold you. I've got you in my hands. Hmm? story is told, and I think it's a true story, happened here and not too far from us, is that there was a preacher that was preaching, and he was always emphasizing, now, God has done all he can do. The rest is up to you. Don't you let him save you and take you to heaven. Please let him save you. And there was an atheist who lived in the community, was in the service that night. And supposedly, as the story is related, that after the service was over, or maybe in the midst of it, I can't remember it altogether, the preacher made the statement, if you don't let God save you, then he'll send you to hell. And the atheist replied, I won't let him. If I have to let him save me, then I'll have to let him send me to hell, and I won't let him save me, and therefore I won't let him send me to hell. See the logic in that? And yet that's what we hear in just a few minutes, or it hasn't started already, why the altar call will start given all over this town. And the exhortation will be, let God save you. Let Jesus come into your heart. All of these expressions, these things, and yet so inconsistent. If men have to give God permission to take them to heaven, then they would also have to have God, give God permission to send them to hell. That's the logic of the situation. And yet the mistake of that is in believing that they are independent beings of God. David says, your hand leads me, your right hand holds me. 
Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. While this humble, while this should give fear to the sinner who is outside of Christ, this great truth encourages the humble saint to trust in God as his refuge. That's my hope. I'm under the shadow of the Almighty. God is my refuge. God is my force. Isn't that interesting? There was a time in my life in which I didn't want anything to do with God. Didn't want anything about this talk about God being my refuge. What in the world happened? God did a work in my life. He saved me. He did it. And the result is now then, instead of being afraid of this great God, I run to Him. He is my refuge and my fortress. In Him, in all sets of circumstances, the sunny days, the sad days, He's my refuge. If He sends the sunshine, I praise Him for that. If He sends the clouds and the storms, I praise Him for that because I can rejoice in whatever set of circumstances I am in. Because I know He is in control of that. He is everywhere. He's not asleep somewhere. I'll trust in Him. Verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, Even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. David raises another scenario. Well, I wait till the sun goes down and gets dark, and then God won't be able to find me. (laughs) Can't outrun him. But I'll just wait till it gets dark. Now, remember, David is not trying to flee from God, but he is showing the essence of the being of God, which we are enabled to grasp somewhat, but not fully. Darkness may protect us from the sight of men, but never from the sight of God. There are certain predators in the animal kingdom which come out after dark. And that is usually when the majority of robbery and thieves come out, is at night. Wicked men love darkness rather than light because they're what? Their deeds are evil. So they think, all right, there's light out here, men will see me. Maybe God sees me, but I'll wait till it really gets dark, and then I'll do my deeds, and God won't see me. There's no greater foolishness than to act as if God does not see us. Psalm 73 in verse 11, the wicked ask these questions. How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? 
Psalm 73, 11. How foolish to act like that God does not know that He is not where you are and that the darkness does not hide Him from you or you from Him. Since nothing can be hid from God, men might as well sin in broad daylight. Why do they have to wait till darkness? They must then believe that if God exists, He is limited in His powers of observation as they are. They can't see everything. God must be just like this. Does God really know? Does God really see? If they would but consider for a minute that He who could not see in the dark could not be God... And he who is not present everywhere could not be the Almighty God. This is the only God with whom we have to deal. God is greater than what He creates. Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. Hmm? Both of these. God guided His people of old, by a pillar of cloud by night, and a pillar of fire, I'm sorry, by day, and a pillar of fire by night. He knew where he was leading them. He's in the dark as well as the light. No difference whatsoever with God. Only the children of Israel needed light to see in darkness. God needs that not. I close with this thought. What if men awake in hell and realize they have photographs imprinted on their consciousness of every secret thought and deed they have committed on earth while thinking God did not see them. Abraham confronted the rich man in hell with this truth. You know what it was? Son, remember. Remember. I repeat again. What if the wicked in hell are suddenly confronted with a photographic mind whereby they shall remember every deed which they have committed on earth in which they did and thinking God did not see it? Jesus said that they shall even give an account of every what? Idle word which is uttered. Hmm? If you're here and you're not saved today, you need a Savior. You know that? (laughs) You need a refuge. You need a place to run to. And you know who that being is you need to run to? It's the person who's angry with your sin. You say, well, if God is angry with me, I better go the other direction. Well, hold on just a minute. 
The person who is angry with sin is also the person who loved us enough that he sent his only begotten Son into the world to bear our sin debt. That's why it makes sense. There's no other refuge to run to. Yes, God is our judge. But the judge is now enabled to show mercy and pardon to those who are guilty. If you see your great need that you cannot escape from the consequences of sin, for the wages of sin is death, then flee to your Creator. Flee to your Redeemer. Look to Him now. Come unto me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. This righteous and holy God who knows everything about us more than we even know ourselves can yet say, come, come. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him who comes I will what? Didn't hear you. No wise cast out. That is the promise of this God. God has never cast out a person who has cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ to be their Savior. Come to Him even today in the free pardon of sin. The God who knows all about you is the God who is enabled to save and do it on a just basis, whereby He can remain just because He, in the person of His Son, has borne the penalty that was due to His broken law. And He can show mercy, because now that law has been satisfied. How can you find fault with such a gospel like that? Hmm? If you will not come, it's because you obviously do not believe what we have said this morning, what David has said, what God makes Himself known, that He is everywhere. He knows all things. Now, where will you stand? It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Come to Christ even now. In simple Saving faith. Trust the one who has given himself in the place of sinners. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, take these words and give us consolation as your saints. Those whom you set apart in Christ. Who called us with a holy calling. Thank you for the refuge that we have of knowing you in the free pardon of sin. Thank you that one day when we were under your wrath, outside of Christ, that you spoke to us and the gospel became gospel. It made sense. I pray if there is one of my hearers today, under the sound of my voice, that the gospel might truly become good news to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.